the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For those of you who are visiting this morning, you're kind of jumping in in the middle of something. I started a series at the beginning of July on creation and specifically the book of Genesis. So we're up to part five of that series right now, but we're still only at the end of Genesis chapter one and beginning to discuss the creation of man as that's described for us in the word of God. One of the things that we have to do as we come to this passage is to make note of patterns of repetition, different words that are used at different points in the narrative and the way those words are connected to the repetition of other words. And we noted a pattern like that specifically last week. The phrase, and God said, occurs seven times in this chapter between verse 3 and verse 24. And every time we read that expression, and God said, it's followed close on its heels by the phrase, and it was so. Well, five times by, and it was so. In one instance, and there was light, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in another, so God created. God said, and then God created. In every case, though, there's a very clear statement that when God speaks during this creation week, what he says happens. The phrase, and God said, is followed by another statement indicating that exactly what God said, exactly what he commanded, to use the words of Psalm 33, is what came to be. Now, this is not a coincidence. It's not just a literary device It's not an indication that the passage is intended to be regarded as Hebrew poetry. Quite the opposite of that, because when we remember 
that this text was given to Moses to give to the people of Israel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit sometime between their arrival at Sinai and their crossing of the Jordan River under Joshua, then it's clear that this passage is not so much about creation. That's certainly there in the background of it. God wants his people to know that the creation is his work. But above all, he wants them to know that it is his work, that this God with whom they have to do, this God who has been speaking to them in an audible voice from the top of Mount Sinai is the creator God who made all things. Now, occasionally you will hear someone make the point that Genesis is not a science textbook, and that is absolutely true. It's not. It's also not a history textbook per se. It's so much more than either of those rather prosaic genres. In fact, what Genesis is, is the introduction to the Torah. It's the introduction to the book of the covenant. It's what the people of Israel needed to know so that the laws and the regulations and the ceremonies and the rituals that they were about to receive in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy were, would, would make sense. It's a book that gives a very specific kind of history, one of the things that I don't know if we'll get to it or not, but um, as you go through the book of Genesis, the people of Israel are being introduced to a whole bunch of distant relatives. And that doesn't seem, as you read Genesis today, like it's all that important, but if you understand who was receiving it and when they were receiving it, well, it makes sense. Because once Israel headed towards the promised land, they were going to go through lands that were occupied by nations that were regarded as cousins and brothers to them. And God wants them to know there's a reason why you're not attacking Edom. There's a reason why you're going to have a different kind of relationship with Amalek and Moab than what you have with the lands of Canaan themselves. And so they get this history, but it's very specifically a covenant history. It's theological history that's meant to reveal the relationship between God and his people, between God and his world, and between his people and the other nations that they were about to encounter. So it's more than a science textbook. It's more than just a straight history textbook. It's a theological history that was given to call people to faith, to call them to know and to love and to trust the living God, who is indeed the creator of all things and the very author of the history that's being recorded here. My point in all of that is that we should not regard evidence of literary structure in this chapter to militate against the truth or even the historicity of the matters that are being discussed here. As the psalmist declared, the sum of your word is truth. And this is the word of God. We cannot impose some interpretation on it that makes it something less than true. Jesus, too, said to his father in John 17, your word is truth. 
So precisely because this is a revelation of God, and by this I mean not only the creation itself, because that too reveals the glory of God, I mean this word in the book of Genesis that speaks to that creation. Because it is a revelation of God, we should not dismiss Genesis 1 as anything other than a revelation of the truth and a revelation of the truth that's given in words that God's people could understand by reading or hearing them. Now, of course, if we've been listening, if we've been hearing with care, and if we've been watching for structure, we might note something that was raised by Francis Schaeffer in his classic work, Genesis and Space and Time. Although this whole chapter is God's description of the work of creation, that word, create or created, is only used at three crucial points. Schaefer wrote the first of these as the point at which God created of nothing. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second point at which God is, is the point at which God created conscious life. So after the creation of everything, sort of at the beginning of one, or at least the building blocks of everything in verse 1, we don't hear that word create again until we come to the point where God creates sea creatures and birds and even the land animals on the next day. The third point is the point at which God created man. And if you were listening when Ron read this text a few moments ago, you will notice that he said create, 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 create. It's almost like he wanted us to be very certain that man was created by God in his image and to hold that as a point on which we could rest our faith. So in verse 1, we have that act of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that act of creation, there was nothing. Schaefer liked to use the word nothing, nothing in the same way that he would use the word true truth. He used to say, if you were to draw a blackboard, and on that blackboard, draw a circle with nothing in it, and then take away the circle, that would be nothing, nothing. R.C. Sproul, I think it was, who said, if you take away the blackboard, too, that's nothing, nothing. And in terms of what we could understand or comprehend about what was before the beginning, that's all there was. Other than God himself, that great being who has eternally existed in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was nothing, nothing. And then having brought into being the bare elements in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God begins this process of differentiation. Let there be light, and there was light. And then God separated the light from the darkness. And the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. And it was good, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And throughout the next several days, that's what we see. God separating, differentiating, saying, let there be, and discovering that there was every single time. But on day five, we come to that first point where we have something different. In verse 20, we read, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, which sounds similar 
to let the earth bring forth vegetation, plants yielding seed in its fruit, etc. But here we have that second use of the Hebrew word for create. So God created. The same word that's used over in chapter 1 or in, in verse 1 of this chapter, God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. I was really happy when Gino read this passage last week because I was looking at it and thinking winged or winged. He said winged, so we're going to go with that. I think it sounds better. Every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So here at the creation of conscious life, the plants that he created, of course, have life, but they don't have consciousness. They are never described here or anywhere else in Scripture as living creatures. Carrot juice does not constitute murder. Some of you will probably know what I'm talking about. It just doesn't. Plants are not living creatures. They are unconsciously alive. But here at the beginning of conscious life, sea creatures and birds and creatures that crawl across the land, God uses that term again. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. Here at the beginning of conscious life, God emphasizes that this is his work of creation again. Because what we have here is something that was as yet unseen in the universe. We have living creatures. Creatures who will respond consciously to the environment around them. And those creatures are brought into being by the word of God. Such that God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Then, of course, on day six, more conscious life. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And again, we have the term living creatures, not to be confused with the life that was made with the intention of that being eaten by the living creatures. In fact, beginning with the creation of the plants and vegetation, we find another phrase that repeats and defines structure within creation. Each according to its kind. This is applied first to the plants. Then it is applied to the living creatures that inhabit the sea and the air. And finally here to the livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. Each according to its kind. All life unconscious as in the case of vegetation and conscious as with the living creatures is created by God according to Genesis 1 according to its kind, type, or category. So according to Genesis, God did not simply create all kinds of things or all things. God very specifically created all things according to their kinds. That's an important distinction. Certainly there can be variation, intentional 
or otherwise within those kinds. A German Shepherd is a dog, so is a Chihuahua. And probably neither of those breeds existed at the time when God created dogs. There can be variation within kind, but it doesn't break that boundary. Now, I believe because of that, that the idea that life has a single point of origin, that there was a single-celled organism that began to evolve, and it evolved in one direction eventually as plants, and it evolved in another direction eventually as animals, and when you get to the animal tree, it starts to branch out into different types of animals. And when you get to the branch that includes the apes and so forth, eventually it branches off to man. I don't believe that that is a possible interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. Now, there are some who do. Um, I'm possibly even in a minority in the Christian Reformed Church with this one, but I will take a stand on that. I do not believe that Genesis 1 allows for the idea that life comes from a single point of origin. We're going to be saying more about this in just a minute. I believe that God created all things according to their kinds. I do not believe that all things evolved from a single kind. And that becomes particularly obvious when we come to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And notice the difference between this and God's prior acts of creation and differentiation. Previously, speaking of animal life, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with the water and with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then again in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. He just keeps hammering that idea. But in verse 26, a clear distinction is made between all of the animals that had been created on day five and at the beginning of day six, a separation. Adam and Eve will not be brought into being in the image of any of those kinds that God had previously brought into existence. Rather, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's so much more that needs to be said about this. We're going to have to come back to it next Sunday if the Lord is willing. But for the, today, let's just let the text speak for itself as this would have spoken when it was first given to Israel through Moses. Speaking of all the plants and living creatures that he had made, God said that each was made and would reproduce according to its kind. But speaking of this final act of creation, he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God is saying this creation is going to be something completely unlike and separate from everything else that I've made. I think, in fact, that we could make the case that everything else that was made was made to provide a place where this man who was created in God's image would live 
and thrive and love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So nothing else in all of creation bears the image of God. Everything else in all of creation displays his glory. By all means, please go outside after the service and take a look around. Look at the stars, the sky. Look at the trees. Look at the grass. Look at the animals. Look at everything you can see. It displays and proclaims the glory of God, but it does not bear his image. Only humanity bears his image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? Well, many things, and we will come back to them next week and possibly even the week after. But just reading on. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the God who created all things and by definition then rules over all things. You may recall some passages, Old and New Testament, that say, does not the potter have the right to do what he wants with the clay? Well, God who made all things has the right to do what he wants with it and he definitely rules over it, but he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We'll be talking more about that down the road as well, but both men and women, males and females, are created in the image of God. And he created them with all that they needed to worship, all that they needed to serve him by exercising dominion over the rest of creation. He gave them the world and all of the plants as food, and then he entered into covenant with them to accomplish his purpose in humanity. Now, how was that meant to be? What was it meant to look like? We find the terms of that creation covenant in verse 28. And God blessed them. I guess so. Everything in this world I'm, I'm giving to you have dominion over the animals, all the plants and fruit and everything that's here. It is all for you. God blessed them. And God said to them, now watch, there's three requirements here. Occasionally you will hear pastors or others say, there's only one law in the Garden of Eden, just one. And they still couldn't keep it. That's, that's actually not true. There is one that's not included here. But here we have three requirements, three commandments, three things that are given as the terms of this covenant which God is making with the man and the woman at this point. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that fruitfulness and multiplying is going to require relationships. Let's just leave it at that for now. Relationships with other people. Adam and Eve will have to come together and then their descendants will have to do so in order to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then subdue it. Subdue the earth. And that's going to require a certain kind of relationship with the physical world in which man was placed. And finally, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And again, this is about relationship. 
relationship to the creatures, each of which were created according to their kinds, relationship to the creatures that will be expressed in a certain kind of dominion over all of them, relationship to the planet itself, and relationship to one another. Someone has said that creation is God's work. Culture is the work that we do with the materials that God has given us. And Adam and Eve were not expected to live in some sort of bliss, roaming around the garden and and just eating the different kinds of fruit and, and not doing anything else. They were given a task Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It probably was not a difficult task for them. They were told to subdue the earth. We can count on the idea that they were to find and use the various raw materials that God had placed into creation to make something of these things. And they were called to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. This is about relationships. But it's also about a relationship to the God who made them. Man created in the image of God is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. But he is to do that always under the rule of God and always and exclusively for the glory of God. That's what it meant for them to be created in his image and charged with the tasks that they were given in this creation covenant. The image of God is more than this. But everything else about the image of God centers on this, on mankind's relationship to God, to one another, and to the world in which God has placed us. And if the Lord is willing, we will come back and we will see the implication of some of those things in weeks to come. For today... This was the task. This was the covenant by which God bound man to himself from the very very beginning of all things. Now we know a couple of weeks ago we looked at Romans 1. We know that man, as represented by our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed in this task. And they fell from the relationship that they had with God from the beginning. And they broke the relationships that they had with one another and with the earth and with the creatures of the earth. They failed. They fell. But it wasn't because God had not equipped them for the work to which they were called. Verse 29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. It is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. What was so? Well, remember the pattern. God speaks, and it is so. So in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. And in verse 30, it was so. So once again, God spoke. And what God commanded came to pass. He said, let us make man in our image with all that that entails. And it was so. And for a while, we really don't know for how long, the creation and 
everything in it existed in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship to God and to itself. When we talk about Eden, the garden of God, that's what we're talking about. This place at the center of the world that God created specifically for this purpose. That man as his regent would exist in his image, would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, push the boundaries of that garden out to the entire planet, that he would subdue that planet, and that he would have dominion over the animals that had also been created. And for a while, that's what was. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. The light and the dark, the land and the sea, the sky and the earth, the plants, the living creatures, in the sea, in the air, and on the land, and especially this man that he had created in his own image, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Everything was good as it appears along the way. The only time that phrase is not used is when God makes the firmament to divide the waters that are above from the waters that are below. But everything was good in its own right, until it all came together in the perfection of this world that God made. And God looks at it and says, it is very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That's why when we look at the world the way it is, I think we can't help but recognize that things are not right. Things are not the way they were meant to be. A lot of things. Our relationship with God is not what it ought to be. Our relationship with our neighbors is not what it ought to be. Our relationship with our spouses and our children is not what it ought to be. Oftentimes, subdue the earth has turned into exploit the earth. And sometimes have dominion over the animals has turned into something ugly that it was never meant to be as well. But I think we have that sense because we all go back to our first parents. We all go back to Adam and Eve that a lot of some things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes 3, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Everyone has that sense built into their heart that we were meant for, for more than what we experience in this world, that we were meant for relationships that are deeper and that penetrate all of those layers that we put up around ourselves to protect ourselves from hurt. Because God has put eternity into our hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, which rung from Solomon the cry, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As I noted a couple of weeks ago, Joni Mitchell put it like this, we are stardust, billion-year-old carbon. We are golden, caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden and while I have and will always take exception to the characterization of man as billion-year-old carbon, it's not true. 
but she accidentally got it right when she said, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Well, at least the back to the garden part. She was wrong in thinking that we could get ourselves there. But I think that longing for the way that God made things is that eternity that God put into our heart, this longing for things that were once and are not, and the hope that they will one day be again. And they will, but not through our struggle, not through our effort. That which was lost by Adam to some extent anyway, we'll talk more about that. The image of God in man is now found in Christ. And that's how we get back to the garden. Paul tells us in Colossians, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Now we look at one another and we realize we, it's hard to see sometimes. But if we look at Christ, we find it there. He is the image of the invisible God, the express image of God, as Hebrews puts it. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So how does the image of God come to be restored in the descendants of fallen man? It comes to be restored when by faith we are incorporated into Christ, into the body of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And that image is restored there. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is the good news. The way things are is not the way they were meant to be. The way things are is not the end of the story. This is our hope in Christ. Not only the renovation of our lives in the here and now, but the reconciliation of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, to the God who has made his fullness to dwell in Christ our Savior. But wait, there's more. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Praise the Lord. And let me close in the words of Andrew Sandlin from his book Creational Worldview. Jesus Christ didn't die just to save sinners. He died to save everything. Everything presently under the dominion of sin must be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. In the words of Cornelius Van Til, the sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. We sing it at Christmas time. We sing it when your pastor throws in joy to the world in the middle of July somewhere. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Jesus died to save 
everything. And so Paul writes, where sin increased, wherever it increased, we could say, grace abounded all the more. 